0: Comes to us from Exodus chapter 27. Exodus 27, we're going to be reading just the first eight verses of this chapter. Exodus 27, beginning at verse 1, what we hear now is God's Word. "...you shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels, and basins, and forks, and fire pans, You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze. And on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar, so that the net extends halfway down the altar. You shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, And overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings, so that the poles are on two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards. As it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. Here we end the reading of God's holy word. Well, last time we began a new series of sermons which I am entitling Christ, and the tabernacle. We're going to look together at the Old Testament tabernacle and its furnishings and show how they shed light upon the work of Christ. We talked about the tabernacle last time, children, as the place where God would dwell, the place where God dwells. And as such, the tabernacle is a picture for us, a shadow for us, of heaven itself, the place where God dwells. It was God's dwelling with his people, which which highlights then for us the work of Christ, who was Emmanuel, who was God with us, dwelling in our midst. And we saw, saw last time, I gave you a little picture, and in very general terms, talked about the way that we approach God in the tabernacle. They would, they would move from the more common to the, to the holy place and the most holy place, a picture that we must not forget God's holiness and approach Him properly. We looked at the materials they were used and how they got closer to God, those materials got more beautiful. Tonight we're going to look at the first furnishing of the tabernacle, that is the altar of burnt offering. And again, we will see here how this altar and its sacrifices point to the work of Jesus Christ. We have the description in verse 1. You shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long and five cubits broad and the altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. So just to kind of get a picture of how big this thing is in round numbers, in round numbers. It's about eight feet square. So if you can imagine an eight-foot table, eight-foot table square, and it's about five feet high or so. So it's, it's substantial. You would not miss it. It is made of bronze, and on its corners there are horns. I have on the, on the outline here it, it's, its strategic placement. This was the first thing you would see when you entered into the courtyard of the tabernacle. It was the first thing you would encounter on your approach to God. And as such, it's a picture of the shedding of blood and of the removal of sin. To come to God, there is a a removal of sin that is required. It is in the courtyard of the tabernacle. Now, we use that term tabernacle kind of in two ways, to describe the courtyard itself and also to describe the tent of meeting, which was the holy place and the most holy place. This this, uh, altar of burnt offering is not put in the most holy place where only the high priest could go. This altar of burnt offering is not put in the holy place where only the priest could go. But the altar is in the courtyard. This is where the people could go. They would have access to the altar, access to God's presence through the altar and its sacrifices thereon. The the picture of the removal of sin, the shedding of blood was not just for the priest, was not just for the high priest. But it was for all Israel. This was the first thing they would encounter as they entered the courtyard of the tabernacle. It was not inside the the tent of meeting and it was not outside in the camp. It was in the courtyard where only the people of God could go. In the camp... There could be various people traveling through, various Gentiles, various nations coming through. They would not have access. The altar for burnt offering was in the courtyard, a place where only God's people had access. It was was a discriminating altar. It wasn't for everyone in the camp. Who happened to come by? It was an altar for the people of God. It's strategic placement. The altar of burnt offering in the courtyard of the tabernacle. And on this altar, of course, they would offer sacrifices. If you have your Bibles open yet, you may want to turn to Leviticus chapter 4. There it describes the sacrifices at the altar. Leviticus chapter 4, uh, beginning at verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, Then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. This is the most holy, the holy place. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense. Again, this is in the holy place before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull He shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that's at the entrance of the tent of meeting. That's the one we're talking about. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it. It describes what he shall take from it. And then in verse 10, and the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. Sacrifice on behalf of the sins of the people. Again in verse 13. If the whole congregation of of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they do any one of the things that, they, that by the Lord's commands ought not to be done, and they realize their guilt. When the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd for the sin offering, and bring it in front of the tent of meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, and the bull shall be killed before the Lord. And that same process is gone through. Laying on of hands, the shedding of the blood, pouring it out at the altar, and the offering up of the sacrifice. Again, that same chapter, verse 22, when a leader sins doing unintentionally any one of all the things that by the commandments of the Lord his God ought not to be done and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring an offering of a goat, a male without blemish and shall lay his hands on the head of the goat and kill it in the place for the killing of the burnt offering before the Lord. It's a sin offering. Again, the same process is gone through. In the last one, verse 27, if anyone of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's command ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring his offering for his offering a goat, a female without blemish for the sin he has committed. He shall lay his hands on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering. The same process gone through. There was this laying on of hands There was the pouring out of the blood, and there was the offering of sacrifice. And in this sacrifice, we see at least three things going on here. There is identification, there is substitution, and there is satisfaction. In the sacrifice made, there was identification, substitution, and satisfaction. There was identification. The person who had sinned would lay his hands on the the animal. It was one of his animals. He laid his hands on his animal. He was being identified with that animal. An animal which was to be brought before God. Identification. There was substitution. The blood of that animal would be poured out, not the person's blood, substitution. The blood of the animal poured out instead of the blood of the person who had sinned before God. And there was satisfaction. The animal was then placed on the altar and offered up as a sin offering, really burnt up. Really an offering to satisfy the wrath of God. Not just symbolically, but really to, really working for, on behalf of the people to picture what was going on in their presence. It wasn't enough for a guy to be willing to offer the sacrifice. He had to actually offer the sacrifice. That's what's going on. Satisfaction for God in, in the sacrifices that were made. Identification. Substitution. Satisfaction and so we see how how beautifully this pictures the work of Jesus Christ the same three principles at work Jesus Christ comes to offer himself as a sacrifice for whom does he die he dies for his own he dies for those with whom he is identified. He was made like us in every way. Sin accepted. He was made like his brothers, that he might, he might have identification with them. He didn't come and die indiscriminately for anybody out there. He came for his own. Yet there is identification between him and his people as he will be offered up as a sacrifice for sin. We call that particular redemption or we call that limited atonement that Christ died for each and every one of his own people. Identification. There is substitution. Kids, I said this morning in the sermon, Jesus didn't do anything wrong. Jesus never did anything wrong. No sin No harsh words that were inappropriate. No actions that were wrong. Nothing. He never broke the law of God. He was perfect. We are the ones who are stained with sin. We are the ones who have have the blood on our hands. But it is not our blood that is poured out. Christ pours out his blood in our place. He is the sacrifice. Substitution. The innocent substituted for the guilty. Now, when this bull or this goat was offered, they hadn't done anything wrong. They were, in that sense, innocent. But they were the ones whose blood was poured out. A substitution, the innocent For the guilty. And and Jesus is even greater than that, as wonderful as that is. He he is the substitute for our sins. But Paul tells us there is another substitution going on. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says this For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's the substitution we're talking about. So that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. Yes, there is the substitution of our sins placed on Christ, but the the second part of the substitution is His righteousness credited to us. A double substitution. Our sins laid on Him, His righteousness credited to us. The picture, the sacrifice, the substitution between Christ and His people. And there was satisfaction. True satisfaction of God's justice, true satisfaction of God's wrath. When Jesus would go all the way to death, he didn't go partway to the cross. He didn't simply offer to go to the cross. He went all the way to the cross and hung there till his death. God did not spare his own son, but offered him up for us satisfaction of his perfect Justice, satisfaction that, that, that only Christ could accomplish for us. Identification, substitution, and satisfaction in the, right, in the righteous sacrifice of Christ. And, and, and again, if you have your Bible open in Leviticus, just turn a couple more chapters to chapter 6. A beautiful reminder for us in chapter 6, verse 8. Six verse eight, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, command Aaron and his sons saying, this is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth of the altar all night until the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put his linen garment and his linen undergarment on his body, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced and the burnt offering on the altar and shall put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garment and put on his other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it and burn, it with, and burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. The fire on the altar for burnt offering was continual. It was never to go out. What is the beautiful picture that God gives us there? That whenever we confess our sin, Whenever we turn to Jesus Christ and repent of what he has done, he doesn't say, closed for the night, sorry, you missed your opportunity. The fire was always there, always burning. Whenever they came and confessed and offered sacrifice for sins, there would be this satisfaction, this substitution, this identification. Christ doesn't say, you've missed your chance. If you are here tonight and, and have never confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, your Lord and Savior, the fire is still burning. Fire on the altar. Jesus is still there to, to take all of your sin, to wash you from all of that impurity. He is still there as the one who identifies with you, each and every one of his own and the one who will continue to offer that satisfaction to God. Today is the day of salvation. Do not think you have missed it. The fire on the altar shall continually burn. It shall never go out. The beautiful picture of the sacrifice of Christ. And then then just one last detail to note on the altar. We read that it shall be five cubits long, five cubits broad, it shall be three cubits high, verse two of chapter 27 of Exodus. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it and you shall overlay it with bronze. There were horns on the altar. Now why would that be, kids? Why would there be horns on the altar? Because the horns were a picture of something. The horns were a picture of power. The horns were a picture of strength. In the Old Testament, we have those pictures of the horns being being something powerful. Powerful to not only remove their sin, but powerful to protect the people of God. In the altar, in the horns of the altar... There was a provision for protection. Again, from Exodus, just going back a couple of pages to Exodus 21. We read in Exodus 21, verse 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. If someone killed someone unintentionally, they could flee to the altar. They could hold on to the horns of the altar. And there they were protected. We have this in the story when, uh, when Solomon is becoming king. You don't have to turn for this one. Solomon's becoming king and, and Adonijah is kind of opposing him yet. And in 1 Kings uh, chapter 1... We read this, Saul's declared king. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. And Adonijah feared Solomon. So he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. But it was told Solomon, Behold, Adonijah flees King Solomon, for behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first, he will not put his servant to death by the sword. He fled to the altar for protection. Holding on to the horns, being taken under the protection of God. That's what Christ does for us as well. We live under His protection. How does Christ protect us? He protects us through His Word and by His Spirit. His Word, which is that That that, that perfect way to live. That perfect path of righteousness. to, To follow after Christ. Living and walking in His ways. To be protected. If you want to be protected from the sins of the world, then don't walk like the world does. But flee to Christ. Hold on to Him. And He, by His Word and Spirit, protect us by leading and guiding and directing us in paths of righteousness, living in the shadow of the altar, living holding on to the horns, knowing Jesus Christ protects us by word and spirit every day of our lives. The Psalm speaks about that. We read about that in Psalm 91, Psalm 84, fleeing to the altar. All of these pictures of Christ's sacrifice for sin what he has done to remove the offense before God, satisfy his wrath, but then we cling to him. We cling to him by faith and walk under the shadow of his protection day after day after day. The altar, of burnt offering. The first thing they would see entering the presence of God, reminding them sin had to be dealt with. Sin that was dealt with by identification, by substitution, by satisfaction and having our sins removed. Now, now clinging to Christ who by his word and spirit continues to, to protect his people today and every day. The lessons we learn from the altar of burnt offering. Let's join together in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for the beautiful pictures you give us in the Old Testament. Beautiful descriptions of that place in which sacrifice was made, but beyond beautiful in that they point us to Christ and who he is and what he has done for us. Lord God, help us ever to flee to him, to flee to him for the forgiveness of our sins and to hold on to him Who will, by His Word and Spirit, direct and protect us? Lord God, thank you for the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, a work that that removes our offense before you and that allows us to live in a way that is pleasing to you. Hear us, O God, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We turn to 285.